Hello, and welcome to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. I am, of course, Dr. Jim Chaltis. And today, I wanted to take a little aside from, you know, the first few podcasts that I did on, you know, functional medicine and functional blood chemistry. Um, indeed, that is my, my primary focus, right? That is the focus of my practice. Um, having said that, I am an acupuncturist. Acupuncture a license in acupuncture, LAC, that is my medical license. So I have a doctorate in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, but a license in acupuncture. That's what the state of California has granted me to work with patients, to insert needles into their skin, right? And to provide herbal therapies and diet and lifestyle coaching, right? That's all under my scope of practice here in the state of California. Now, that's not the case in some other states. Most other states, an acupuncturist cannot order blood chemistry, for example. But I can here, and I do. Um, so today, I, I kind of want to just mix it up a little bit and, and talk about acupuncture, right? What is it? How does it work? Depends on who you ask, of course. Um, you know, and, and really kind of just give you a basic understanding of what traditional Chinese medicine is how does it work? What is it? How does it think? How does it break down problems, right? And is it impacted by placebo, <laughs> right? So I want to talk about all those things. Um, so I think a very good way to kind of lead into this concept is just to give you an example that I think we're all familiar with. So take for example a common cold. We all know it as you know, a, a rhinovirus, perhaps, some kind of an upper respiratory viral infection, lasts a week or so, makes you feel lousy, uh, but we recover. More times than not, we recover. The ancient people, and we're talking three to 4,000 years back now, right? They didn't know what a virus was. They didn't have electron microscopy at that point. They couldn't see that small. But they did notice that people tended to get most sick in the winter time, in the storms, in the cold, in the wet, in the damp, right? And so they would consider these types of respiratory infections to be wind invasions. And, and quite frankly, back in the day, they, they really did envision wind entering their body and blowing around and, and causing disharmony. There's a couple spots on the back of the neck, just under the skull, gallbladder 20. And it's, it roughly translates in the, in the Chinese words to wind gate. It, it allows wind into the system, right? And so you might see even today some um, people that grew up perhaps in that very traditional Chinese environment. My professors absolutely would do this up in Santa Cruz, which was kind of cold and, and rainy. They would wear turtlenecks or they would wear a, a scarf around their neck. They would you know, wear a high collar in the wintertime because they're trying to block the wind from getting in. So interesting. But the ancients would ascribe a wind invasion to these things. And why wind? Well, one, because that's what the environment looked like at the time. They, they, they felt it was coming in. But two, because wind tends to come and go and change directions kind of quickly. And, and so can a cold, right? The first day, you might have a little scratchy throat. The second day, a sore throat. The third day, more of a sinus you know, drainage or a deeper cough. And it, it starts to kind of change and progress. So just like wind, the infection also does the same. So wind invasion. Now, 
you can have the type of wind invasion that comes with a sore throat and maybe a yellow productive, you know, phlegmy cough and a fever and maybe some sweating, right? We're going to call that a wind heat, right? A wind heat invasion. These are hot type symptoms. Now, you can also have a kind of common cold that presents more with chills and body aches and maybe a headache and a clear runny discharge and congestion of the sinus. They're both viral. They both qualify as wind invasions, but this is more of a wind cold, right? So the treatment changes. We can use a system of points on the body with acupuncture that would be considered sort of wind clearing points. We can translate in that into immune stimulating points, helping the immune system function better. And ideally the person recovers from their infection quicker. But you can also incorporate, as the case may you know, dictate, heat clearing points or you know, warming points. You can do that also with herbs, of course. You, know, you can start with you know, a certain formula that's more of a heat clearing, wind heat clearing you know, concept. Herb, herbal formulas tend to you know, be a half a dozen or more herbs in combination, so you can kind of layer them and change them as they go and modify. That's one of the real beauties of this, this type of medicine is it's very personalized, not only to the individual, but it's also adjusted and customized to the phase of, of that particular problem, that infection, if you will. A cold will change. You might start off as a wind heat and end up as a wind cold or a wind damp, right? There's lots of different ways that these things can go, and the acupuncturist and the herbalist can track that, right? We can look at the symptoms. We can look at the body and observe the patient. We can feel the pulses and feel the qualities of the pulse, not just the beats per minute, but how does that blood flow feel as it's coursing through the artery underneath the fingertips? It comes on in a certain way. It touches the, the fingertip, and it, it exits the fingertip at a certain way. And that tells us a lot. We can look at the tongue. You know, a wind heat might come with a, a redder tongue with a thick yellow coat. Whereas a wind cold might be, you know, pink, which is normal, or even pale, and, and might come with more of a, a white coat. Right? Yellow is more of a heat sign. Yellow phlegm, right? Heat in the lungs. So this is sort of how we break it down. And the same thing can be said for all sorts of things. Um, when we really talk about the notion of chi flow, right? The coursing of chi, of body energy, through all of the meridians, the, the 12 main meridians, and there's a half a dozen or so extra meridians. Um, you know, this is kind of the, the, the role of acupuncture. It's to help adjust, I suppose. It's to help maintain and to support the smooth and free flow of chi in the channels. Channels and meridians, kind of the same, same concept. Two different words for the same thing. Um, so you can have a deficiency of chi, you can have an excess of chi, and you can have a stagnation of chi. One of those three things. The most easy way to understand a stagnation is just if you bonk your elbow and it gets bruised and swollen, you know, the chi and blood are pooling and it hurts and it's an injury, right? Um, that seems like a very obvious way of understanding a stagnation. You can actually see it visibly in some cases. 
So you can identify which channels are passing through that area of injury and insert the pins at appropriate spots and really help improve the flow. If you improve the flow of chi, the blood will follow. That's the theory. And so you tend to see improvements in injury and reduction in swelling and, and, and improvements in bruising. So a very powerful intervention for a lot of things. And, and there are studies, actually, that have shown. And there are actually guidelines, mainstream medical guidelines, that recommend things like acupuncture as a first line of care for instances of, let's say, acute lumbar sprain. Right? They, they're not going to cover all the things, but what they've identified is a handful of usually injury, uh, pain syndromes, where given the alternatives of opiates or even you know, higher dose uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or, or Tylenol, which can end up harming the gastrointestinal tract or harming the liver or kidneys um, if overused, acupuncture provides an extremely safe uh, intervention and effective. Right? So as a first line, there are medical guidelines that they recommend acupuncture as a, as a first line of approach. If that doesn't work, then hey, let's talk about the others. Maybe it might be a steroid injection or something local, um, but you know, we, we could take it from there. So that's a stagnation. Now, you could have a deficiency. That also might be a little obvious. You, you might just be one of those people, like I've already mentioned in my functional medicine talks on anemia or you know, perhaps low blood sugar, where you just don't have the get up and go. You know, you're feeling depleted all the time. You're, maybe you are, are in advanced age and you've just, you've spent all of your chi for the life. You know, you're, you're winding down now. There's deficiency naturally built into our aging process. Or perhaps you're just somebody who just can't digest their food well and you just lots of undigested food in the stool perhaps or, you know, you just get outwardly bloated all the time and you just don't have the power to, to process the meal. That could be looked at as a form of deficiency. The Chinese medical model might call it a spleen chi deficiency. And we don't want to get bogged down by the name of the organ. It was probably a mistranslation, spleen. Most likely they meant pancreas, which is more of a digestive organ. Um, but in our system, we call it spleen chi, right? That, that notion of I eat food, I drink water, I breathe air. It mixes in the middle, right? All they knew was that th these things were located in our abdomen. So we kind of picture this middle chi, this, this zhang chi, they call it. Um, how do we create our daily working energy, our daily chi, out of our food and our air and our water? It's very much a process of the spleen chi concept. And that spleen chi is very much fed by the fire that the kidneys pr provide, right? We need... We need heat. We need yang energy in our system, right? Without yang energy, we don't have a driving force. So another main tenet of traditional Chinese medicine is in that yin and yang concept. It's a, it's a duality in life. There is no absolutes. I am considered yang to perhaps, let's say, my wife because I am male and she is female. Um, I am also larger and heavier and physically stronger right? That's more of a yang concept. She might provide more of a nurturing, softer, you know, caring energy. Although I, I liken myself as a caring man, but it's all in relativity, right? Um, 
I might be yin in some ways to like, you know, a 250 pound bodybuilder or um, a Navy SEAL <laughs> who, who can out yong me any day, right? So there's no cut and dry with these things. It's all in balance and how do we appreciate relationships. That also speaks to the notion of early, early functional medicine. How do we regain function? How do we balance the system? Acupuncture in Chinese medicine, in my opinion, is the earliest form of functional medicine. Okay, so that, that's sort of yin and yang in a very brief nutshell. Um, but you might also have excess, you know, and that could be something like hypertension or, you know, migraine headache or something like that where you can picture the, I kind of like those old cartoons. I might be dating myself, but... Um, you know, maybe it was Yosemite Sam or something like that who gets upset at Bugs Bunny and, and he starts to turn red and you see that level of red start going up to his face and then steam starts pouring out his head, right? You know, that would be considered like a, perhaps a yin deficiency from the root, not enough cooling and so yang starts to rise and, and so we get, we get hypertension and we get headaches and maybe even stroke. I mean, walk down the road, you're going to see usually a man who's beat red in the face, you know, you worry for that man. Something bad is about to happen. So that would be a way of looking at maybe excess trapped. You know, there's these balances of, of deficiency and excess. And, and that is the art of functional, pardon me, of traditional Chinese medicine. That is the art. Because we need to have a balance of art and science, right? The ancients didn't have the science. So they really used their ability to observe, right? The herbal... Um, formulas, the herbal medicines that developed over thousands of years, they're not nonsense, right? They might lack a lot of that really high budget funding to test for that one chemical that does the magic job. When in reality, herbal medicine works in synergy. You know, we have groups of things. They have active compounds. They might have used some kind of shady reasoning at the time. Like there was a a little saying that my, my herbal professor, Jeffrey Pong, would say, and it was like for like. If you have sinus problems, you eat pig snout, right? If you have tendon problems, you use herbs that look like tendons, vines, you know. So this, of course, is too simplified. There, there's no, you know, grounded scientific rationale for such a line of thought. But that got them started. That got them looking in places and applying these things, I would say, scientifically, trial and error. There's nothing better in science than just trying something out and seeing what happens and giving yourself enough time to know if that's happening. One of my big problems with pharmaceuticals today is that they go through their clinical trials, and those last several years perhaps, but the real trial doesn't start until millions and millions of people take them for decades. Then we know what happened. So the good news about Chinese herbal medicine is that we've had thousands of years now to observe the benefits and observe the dangers, right? So I, I, f I feel for all of those, probably those poor little peasants or perhaps prisoners back in the ancient times that were forced to try this little mushroom or this, this leaf or this berry and to see what happens. Those people died and they suffered right? That's not a pleasant history, but that's how we have our, our pharmacy today, right? We know how they work. Science is starting to catch up. So there's a lot of wisdom in the ancients, right? Trial and error. 
And again, the beauty of a Chinese herbal formula is that we have a chance to blend herbs together. So we might have a series of wind clearing herbs, and then we have some heat clearing herbs, and one of those might be on the mildly irritating or, or to be dramatic, maybe on the toxic side. So taken by itself, you would not do well with that one particular herb. But if you blend it with the others, if you add things that have nothing to do with wind or heat, but have a detoxifying impact, now you get to utilize the benefits of that mildly toxic herb while at the same time diminishing its toxic impact. Wisdom. There's wisdom there, right? Trial and error. Okay, so I think that was about four years of my of my traditional Chinese medical training, uh, you know, explained in 15 minutes. It doesn't do it justice, but I think it gets the point across. The acupuncturist feels pulses. The acupuncturist looks at tongues. Some acupuncturists have a system of eye um, iridology, it's called. They can look at your eyes and, and look for things. We have a system of, of observing the ear as a microsystem of the body. A lot of people know about foot reflexology. That, that's not particularly a Chinese medical concept, but the notion is the same. There's a microsystem of our body represented on every part of our body. The ear is a handy way of doing it. I'll share one concept here around this that was really an eye-opener for me. You're always getting these little check-ins over time, right? My father, who is now passed, uh, had a liver transplant at one point, right? So he ended up with this gigantic incision in his abdomen. You know, they, they peeled him open like an orange, poor fella, and they removed his, his diseased liver and replaced a new liver. And this gave my dad a lot of vitality back. It gave him his life back in a lot of ways. Having said that, he has somebody else's liver in his abdomen, and he was cut in a very dramatic way. On the ear, there's a, a representation of all the organs in the whole ab abdominal area, uh, as well as the rest of the body. Sometime after that, I noticed that on both sides of both ears, right in the liver and stomach region of the ear, developed a large, I guess you'd call it a varicose vein. <laughs> Strange to think of varicose veins in an ear, but there was a, a distended vein now, right, in the in the region of the liver that was not there prior to his operation. So the blood stagnation in that vein, that visible purple line now that wasn't there before, that represents stagnation in the body. And you can do it also with just a normal little um, touch. I have a little small blunt metal tool I can start pressing on points in the ear and the person will yelp if there's issues in, that, in the rest of that body. It's an energetic connection. Interesting. Fascinating, in my opinion. Um, somebody might have um, an injury to their, to their left knee, and I can touch a point on their right ear. It's, it's cross-body, just like the brain and body, right? So on their right ear, I can palpate around the knee region or the leg region, and they're going to find a spot, more times than not, that makes them yelp. It's a painful spot. There's stagnation represented there. So we can needle the, the ear point, and it helps relieve the pain and improve circulation to the to the joint. Fascinating. Okay. I'd like to end with just two very interesting examples that I that, that always come to mind when I think of of this system and this way of looking at things. And the first one was when I was in 
you know, one of my last years in my master's program, becoming an acupuncturist, we had to take, you know, different clinical rounds in specialties. And, you know, I was in a particular, um, you know, course of pediatrics. And so the, the pediatric specialist acupuncturist, who is also an MD in China, non-practicing MD in America, but um, pediatric specialist here in, in, the, in the field of acupuncture and herbs. So we saw this, this infant, and this infant um, was brought in by, by her mom, and she had a 103 plus, I don't recall the exact point what it was, but it was over 103 degree fever, and this was a sick baby. You know, it's not the kind of baby that is fussy because they're sick. This is the kind of baby that's sort of crossed over now and is much more lethargic. And um, there's a point on the back of the neck. It's called do 14. The do channel runs down the spine and over the head. And, and do 14 happens to be a, a primary heat clearing point. I mentioned that earlier, right? You can, you can address the body in certain ways that help clear heat, for example, and this is the primary one. You can also add heat to this point. You might recognize that um, every time you go in the shower and you, you let that heat just go right on your back of your neck and it feels lovely. It warms you. Uh, but you can also needle this point. And when you're needling a baby or a small child, it's not the same as an older person where you retain the needles for 30 minutes or so. With the young ones, we just a quick in and out. It's just a little stimulation. And they don't even know what happened, and they, they don't even develop the fear around it yet. <laughs> so it's actually a very um, gentle and pleasant and ethical approach to care, believe it or not, even though a little bitty pin is going in for a few seconds. So we tested, we, we checked the temperature before the treatment, 103 point something, and then 15 minutes later after that little in and out needle point and a few little massage techniques to kind of redden the skin just a little bit, little possibly little pinches or, uh, you know, kind of scraping, which makes, makes the circulation come to the surface, right? Just a hands-on approach. Um, this fever went down two and a half points, 15 minutes. You had to see it to believe it. There was no acetaminophen. There was no you know, Motrin, none of that stuff. Um, this was a, a, a parent who wanted a, a more natural approach, and it works, right? So that was an eye-opener to me because at that point I was still just a, a, a student, and I, I didn't have all the experience to know. So I'm a scientist at heart. I need to see to believe. And that baby perked up, and that temperature showed 2.5 degrees improvement in 15 minutes. So there's a system at play that works. Before I tell you my next story, I want to also um, just, just say that there are some very, very cool research that is going on these days. And when you ask somebody in, you know, kind of modern research, how does acupuncture work? I, I, the best explanation that I've ever heard um, was actually from a neurologist. And, and what they said was, our brains are everything, which I agree with. Our brains have this somatic topic map of our body. It knows where all of our spots are. It knows everything. It knows where our organs are. It knows when things are opening and closing in our intestines. It, there's a wisdom there, right? And so when you're touched anywhere, in any fashion, the brain picks up on that, and it, it can respond however way it wants to respond. For some people, you touch them on the back and they jump. It's too scary. They weren't expecting it. Other people, you touch them and they're your best friend forever because that's just a very pleasing thing to them. Right. The ancients, 
figured out spots on the body, trial and error. They figured out patterns of spots that create a change in the brain that reflects backwards, right? That, that creates change. We were able to listen to our bowel sounds with stethoscopes in an in a acupuncture lab at one point and count the number of gurgles and get an idea of, you know, motility in the gut um, before acupuncture. And then insert just one needle to be as scientific as possible. One needle into a point called stomach 36, which is on the lateral side of the knee, just under the kneecap. It's on the stomach channel. It works with digestion and peristalsis, meaning the movement of the intestines. And we noticed a threefold increase in gut sounds. So one point on the knee changed the way the gut functions. The only way to really explain that scientifically or Western-minded or, you know, any kind of mainstream way at this point is neurology. You needle the point, the brain says, oh, yes, and then it reflects backwards and it does what it does. So I found that to be very interesting. Um, I think that's the second part to my initial question, how does it work? I told you the ancient way, but this is, I believe, how the, the more kind of grounded and, and um, current understanding is. There's also release of local endorphins and things like that for pain and inflammation, and that can, that can help too for injury. But that doesn't explain how it helps for things like um, numbness. You know, numbness is not pain. I'm not turning down a pain signal if you have numbness in your, in your limb. We're probably stimulating brain. Remembering where that limb is in space, helping your brain reconnect with that. My last um, little case example here is, is also one that I love to remember that keeps me grounded as a functional medicine practitioner because I admit it is my bias and I tend to go there. I tend to think in Western medical terms, usually first. And when those don't work, I, I kind of tend to switch more into the Eastern, you know, ancient Chinese medical concepts because sometimes that's just the way it, it heals. So this was many years back. I was just getting into functional medicine. And of course, that was all I was seeing. I was very biased. And a woman came in and she was an oboe player. And an oboe, if you don't know, is, uh, has a double reed. And I didn't know this back in the day, but it has a double reed. And there is a flickering motion that they can do with their tongue that gives them a flutter uh, you know, in their, in their notes, a very rapid flutter. And um, this woman had a seat in a symphony. And she was about to lose her seat because she was losing dexterity in her tongue. Her tongue couldn't do the flutter. She was missing notes and it was getting noticed. So she came to me in a panic, right? Didn't know what else to try. What does the mainstream approach have for that? And so in getting into her history, I heard that she had recently, about maybe two years prior, had lost her husband suddenly and, you know, found herself alone and missing him and sad. And after that, it was about, it'd been about six months or so, her son also died. But her son died not suddenly and unexpectedly. Her son had a, um, some kind of a degenerative disease and died slowly, literally in her arms under her, her long-term care. So this is terrible and crushing, as you can well imagine. Um, her heart, her spirit... You know, in the more Chinese medical concept, her shen. Her shen was disturbed, right? And I had to think about it. How can I help this person? I, I don't think I can help her with her blood sugar 
or her thyroids or anything like that. It's probably not gluten sensitivity. I remembered back to my acupuncture training and we learned that the heart, the shen, it blossoms onto the tongue is how they would describe it, right? So if you can picture somebody who has just seen their whole family gunned down in World War II and they're in shock and their, their life has just ended in a lot of ways, um, their heart is destroyed at, at the atrocity. They might be rendered speechless. They might have that reaction where their tongue doesn't work, their voice doesn't work. So that's where they're coming from. The heart blossoms onto the tongue. And so all at once I knew I, I need to work on heart chi. So I wasn't going to approach her as a, a, a cold clinical doctor who wants to talk about blood chemistry. I needed to approach her as a caring human. That was my first job as, as a doctor, is to be there with her, right, and listen and provide empathy, right, and, and be that person who can help. She doesn't have many other people, and she's about to lose a spot on the symphony, which is her only community. And so we worked on heart chi, and there's a system for that. I can't get into all the details of the point prescriptions, but we did acupuncture. And I would say it was about, we did weekly acupuncture, I would say it was about five or six sessions in, and she brought her oboe in, and she played me a lovely tune with a tongue flutter, <laughs> and she gained her dexterity back in her tongue. It was heart chi. What does that mean? I don't know. It means heart chi. It means spirit. We needed to help her spirit. And I was so pleased to effectively have done that for her. And it was a good reminder that medicine is not about diagnostic labs. It's not about making a diagnosis. It's not about giving a drug or an herb. It's about being with your patient and providing benefit and being fluid so that we can constantly readjust what that benefit might mean to that person. So that is my story. That is in a very precise nutshell, kind of my take on functional medicine as compared to traditional Chinese medicine, as compared to just acupuncture by itself. Um, it's a big, big topic, and it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. So I do hope you enjoyed that. Um, I will be interspersing, if that's a real word, I will be interspersing um, topics around acupuncture and Chinese medicine throughout this podcast. Um, so please stay tuned. Thank you so much. My name is Dr. Jim Chaltas, and this is A Functional Approach. Bye-bye.